Book One, Chapter Three, Part One of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Connoisseur of Kisses From his undergraduate days as editor of the Harvard Crimson, Richard Caramel had desired to write. But as a senior, he had picked up the glorified illusion that certain men were set aside for service, and, going into the world, were to accomplish a vague, yearnful something which would react either in eternal reward, or at the least, in the personal satisfaction of having striven for the greatest good of the greatest number. This spirit has long rocked the colleges in America. It begins, as a rule, during the immaturities and facile impressions of freshman year, sometimes back in preparatory school. Prosperous apostles, known for their emotional acting, go the rounds of the universities, and, by frightening the amiable sheep and dulling the quickening of interest and intellectual curiosity which is the purpose of all education, distill a mysterious conviction of sin, harking back to childhood crimes and to the ever-present menace of women. To these lectures go the wicked youths to cheer and joke and the timid to swallow the tasty pills, which would be harmless if administered to farmers' wives and pious drug clerks, but a rather dangerous medicine for those future leaders of men. This octopus was strong enough to wind a sinuous tentacle about Richard Caramel. The year after his graduation, it called him into the slums of New York, to muck about with bewildered Italians as secretary to an alien young men's rescue association. He labored at it over a year before the monotony began to weary him. The aliens kept coming inexhaustibly. Italians, Poles, Scandinavians, Czechs, Armenians, with the same wrongs, the same exceptionally ugly faces, and very much the same smells, though he fancied that these grew more profuse and diverse as the months passed. His eventual conclusions about the expediency of service were vague, but concerning his own relation to it they were abrupt and decisive. Any amiable young man, his head ringing with the latest crusade, could accomplish as much as he could with the debris of Europe, and it was time for him to write. He had been living in a downtown Y.M.C.A., but when he quit the task of making sow-ear purses out of sow's ears, he moved uptown and went to work immediately as a reporter for The Sun. He kept at this for a year, doing desultory writing on the side, with little success. And then, one day, an infelicitous incident peremptorily closed his newspaper career. On a February afternoon he was assigned to report a parade of Squadron A. Snow-threatening, he went to sleep instead before a hot fire, and when he woke up did a smooth column about the muffled beats of the horse's hoofs in the snow. This he handed in. Next morning a marked copy of the paper was sent down to the city editor with a scrawled note. Fire the man who wrote this. It seemed that Squadron A had also seen the snow threatening, had postponed the parade until another day. A week later he had begun The Demon Lover. In January, the Monday of the months, Richard Caramel's nose was blue constantly, a sardonic blue, vaguely suggestive of the flames licking around a sinner. His book was nearly ready, 
and as it grew in completeness it seemed to grow also in its demands, sapping him, overpowering him, until he walked haggard and conquered in its shadow. Not only to Anthony and Maury did he pour out his hopes and boasts and indecisions, but to anyone who could be prevailed upon to listen. He called on polite but bewildered publishers. He discussed it with his casual vis-a-vis -vis at the Harvard Club. It was even claimed by Anthony that he had been discovered, one Sunday night, debating the transposition of Chapter Two with a literary ticket-collector in the chill and dismal recesses of a Harlem subway station. And latest among his confidants was Mrs. Gilbert, who sat with him by the hour and alternated between bilphism and literature in an intense cross-fire. Shakespeare was a bilphist, she assured him through a fixed smile. Oh, yes, he was a bilphist. It's been proved. At this, Dick would look a bit blank. If you've read Hamlet, you can't help but see. Well, he... He lived in a more credulous age, a more religious age. But she demanded the whole loaf. Oh, yes, but, you see, bilphism isn't a religion. It's the science of all religions. She smiled defiantly at him. This was the bon mot of her belief. There was something in the arrangement of words which grasped her mind so definitely that the statement became superior to any obligation to define itself. It is not unlikely that she would have accepted any idea encased in this radiant formula, which was perhaps not a formula. It was the reductio ad absurdum of all formulas. Then, eventually, but gorgeously, would come Dick's turn. You've heard of the new poetry movement. You haven't? Well, it's a lot of young poets that are breaking away from the old forms and doing a lot of good. Well, what I was going to say was that my book is going to start a new prose movement, a sort of renaissance. I'm sure it will, beamed Mrs. Gilbert. I'm sure it will. I went to Jenny Martin last Tuesday, the palmist, you know, that everyone's mad about. I told her my nephew was engaged upon a work, and she said she knew I'd be glad to hear that his success would be extraordinary. But she'd never seen you or known anything about you, not even your name." Having made the proper noises to express his amazement at this astounding phenomenon, Dick waved her theme by him as though he were an arbitrary traffic policeman and, so to speak, beckoned forward his own traffic. "'I'm absorbed, Aunt Catherine,' he assured her. "'I really am. All my friends are joshing me. Oh, I see the humor in it, and I don't care. I think a person ought to be able to take joshing.' "'But I've got a sort of conviction,' he concluded gloomily. "'You're an ancient soul, I always say.' "'Maybe I am.' Dick had reached the stage where he no longer fought, but submitted. He must be an ancient soul, he fancied grotesquely, so old as to be absolutely rotten. However, the reiteration of the phrase still somewhat embarrassed him, and sent uncomfortable shivers up his back. He changed the subject. "'Where is my distinguished cousin, Gloria?' "'She's on the go somewhere, with someone.' Dick paused, considered, 
and then, screwing up his face into what was evidently begun as a smile, but ended as a terrifying frown, delivered a comment. "'I think my friend Anthony Patch is in love with her.' Mrs. Gilbert started, beamed half a second too late, and breathed her, "'Really?' in the tone of a detective play-whisper. "'I think so,' corrected Dick, gravely. "'She's the first girl I've ever seen him with so much.' "'Well, of course,' said Mrs. Gilbert, with meticulous carelessness. "'Gloria never makes me her confidant. She's very secretive. Between you and me—' She bent forward cautiously, obviously determined that only Heaven and her nephew should share her confession. "'Between you and me, I'd like to see her settle down.' Dick arose and paced the floor earnestly a small, active, already rotund young man, his hands thrust unnaturally into his bulging pockets. "'I'm not claiming I'm right, mind you,' he assured the infinitely of the hotel steel engraving which smirked respectably back at him. "'I'm saying nothing that I'd want Gloria to know. But I think Mad Anthony is interested, tremendously so. He talks about her constantly. In anyone else that'd be a bad sign.' Gloria's a very young soul," began Mrs. Gilbert eagerly, but her nephew interrupted with a hurried sentence. "'Gloria'd be a very young nut not to marry him.' He stopped and faced her, his expression a battle-map of lines and dimples, squeezed and strained to its ultimate show of intensity, this as if to make up by his sincerity for any indiscretion in his words. "'Gloria's a wild one, Aunt Catherine she's uncontrollable. How she's done it, I don't know, but lately she's picked up a lot of the funniest friends. She doesn't seem to care. And the men she used to go with around New York were—he paused for breath. Yes, 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 interjected Mrs. Gilbert, with an anemic attempt to hide the immense interest with which she listened. Well, continued Richard Caramel gravely, there it is. I mean that the men she went with and the people she went with used to be first-rate. Now they aren't." Mrs. Gilbert blinked very fast. Her bosom trembled, inflated, remained so for an instant, and with the exhalation her words flowed out in a torrent. She knew, she cried in a whisper, oh yes, mother see these things. But what could she do? He knew Gloria. He'd seen enough of Gloria to know how hopeless it was to try to deal with her. Gloria had been so spoiled, in a rather complete and unusual way. She had been suckled until she was three, for instance, when she could probably have chewed sticks. Perhaps, one never knew, it was this that had given that health and hardiness to her whole personality. And then, ever since she was twelve years old, she'd had boys about her so thick oh, so thick one couldn't move. At sixteen she began going to dances at preparatory schools, and then came the colleges, and everywhere she went, boys, boys, boys. At first, oh, until she was eighteen, there had been so many that it never seemed one any more than the others, but then she began to single them out. She knew there had been a string of affairs spread over about three years, perhaps a dozen of them altogether. Sometimes the men were undergraduates, sometimes just out of college. 
they lasted on an average of several months each, with short attractions in between. Once or twice they had endured longer, and her mother had hoped she would be engaged, but always a new one came, a new one. The men? Oh, she made them miserable, literally. There was only one who had kept any sort of dignity, and he had been a mere child, young Carter Kirby of Kansas City, who was so conceited anyway that he just sailed out on his vanity one afternoon and left for Europe next day with his father. The others had been wretched. They never seemed to know when she was tired of them, and Gloria had seldom been deliberately unkind. They would keep phoning, writing letters to her, trying to see her, making long trips after her around the country. Some of them had confided in Mrs. Gilbert, told her with tears in their eyes that they would never get over Gloria. At least two of them had since married, though. But Gloria, it seemed, struck to kill. To this day Mr. Carstairs came up once a week and sent her flowers which she no longer bothered to refuse. Several times, twice at least, Mrs. Gilbert knew it had gone as far as a private engagement, with Tudor Baird and that Holcomb boy at Pasadena. She was sure it had, because—this must go no further—she had come in unexpectedly and found Gloria acting, well, very much engaged indeed. She had not spoken to her daughter, of course. She had had a certain sense of delicacy, and, besides, each time she had expected an announcement in a few weeks. But the announcement never came. Instead, a new man came. Scenes. Young men walking up and down the library like caged tigers. Young men glaring at each other in the hall as one came and the other left. Young men calling up on the telephone and being hung up upon in desperation. Young men threatening South America. Young men writing the most pathetic letters. She said nothing to this effect, but Dick fancied that Mrs. Gilbert's eyes had seen some of these letters. And Gloria, between tears and laughter, sorry, glad, out of love and in love, miserable, nervous, cool, amidst a great returning of presents, substitution of pictures in immemorial frames, and taking of hot baths and beginning again with the next. That state of things continued, assumed an air of permanency. Nothing harmed Gloria, or changed her, or moved her. And then, out of a clear sky one day, she informed her mother that undergraduates wearied her. She was absolutely going to no more college dances. This had begun the change. Not so much in her actual habits, for she danced, and had as many dates as ever. But they were dates in a different spirit. Previously it had been a sort of pride, a matter of her own vain glory. She had been, probably, the most celebrated and sought-after young beauty in the country. Gloria Gilbert of Kansas City. She had fed on it ruthlessly, enjoying the crowds around her, the manner in which the most desirable men singled her out, enjoying the fierce jealousy of other girls, enjoying the fabulous, not to say scandalous, and her mother was glad to say entirely unfounded rumors about her. For instance, that she had gone in the Yale swimming pool one night in a chiffon evening dress. And from loving it with a vanity that was almost masculine, it had been in the nature of a triumphant and dazzling career, 
she became suddenly anesthetic to it. She retired. She, who had dominated countless parties, who had blown fragrantly through many ballrooms to the tender tribute of many eyes, seemed to care no longer. He who fell in love with her now was dismissed utterly, almost angrily. She went listlessly with the most indifferent men. She continually broke engagements, not as in the past from a cool assurance that she was irreproachable, that the man she insulted would return like a domestic animal, but indifferently, without contempt or pride. She rarely stormed at men any more, she yawned at them. She seemed, and it was so strange, she seemed to her mother to be growing cold. Richard Caramel listened. At first he had remained standing, but as his aunt's discourse waxed in content, it stands here pruned by half, of all side references to the youth of glorious soul and to Mrs. Gilbert's own mental distresses, he drew a chair up and attended rigorously as she floated, between tears and plaintive helplessness, down the long story of Gloria's life. When she came to the tale of this last year, a tale of the ends of cigarettes left all over New York in little trays marked Midnight Frolic and Justine's Johnson's Little Club, he began nodding his head slowly, then faster and faster, until, as she finished on a staccato note, it was bobbing briskly up and down, absurdly like a doll's wired head, expressing almost anything. In a sense, Gloria's past was an old story to him. He had followed it with the eyes of a journalist, for he was going to write a book about her some day. But his interests, just at present, were family interests. He wanted to know, in particular, who was this Joseph Bleakman that he had seen her with several times. And those two girls she was with constantly, this Rachel Gerald and this Miss Kane, surely Miss Kane wasn't exactly the sort one would associate with Gloria. But the moment had passed. Mrs. Gilbert having climbed the hill of exposition was about to glide swiftly down the ski-jump of collapse. Her eyes were like a blue sky seen through two round, red window-casements. The flesh about her mouth was trembling. And at the moment the door opened, admitting into the room Gloria and the two young ladies lately mentioned. Two Young Women Well. How do you do, Mrs. Gilbert? Miss Kane and Miss Gerald are presented to Mr. Richard Caramel. This is Dick. Laughter. I've heard so much about you, says Miss Kane between a giggle and a shout. How do you do? says Miss Gerald shyly. Richard Caramel tries to move about as if his figure were better. He is torn between his innate cordiality and the fact that he considers these girls rather common not at all the farm-over type. Gloria has disappeared into the bedroom. "'Do sit down,' beams Mrs. Gilbert, who is by now quite herself. "'Take off your things.' Dick is afraid she will make some remark about the age of his soul, but he forgets his qualms in completing a conscientious novelist's examination of the two young women. Muriel Kane had originated in a rising family of East Orange. She was short rather than small, and hovered audaciously between plumpness and width. Her hair was black and elaborately arranged. This, in conjunction with her handsome, rather bovine eyes, and her over-red lips, 
combined to make her resemble Theda Bera, the prominent motion picture actress. People told her constantly that she was a vampire, and she believed them. She suspected, hopefully, that they were afraid of her, and she did her utmost under all circumstances to give the impression of danger. An imaginative man could see the red flag that she constantly carried, waving it wildly, beseechingly, and, alas, to little spectacular avail. She was also tremendously timely. She knew the latest songs, all the latest songs. When one of them was played on the phonograph she would rise to her feet and rock her shoulders back and forth and snap her fingers, and if there was no music she would accompany herself by humming. Her conversation was also timely. "'I don't care,' she would say. "'I should worry and lose my figure.' And again, "'I can't make my feet behave when I hear that tune. Oh, baby!' Her fingernails were too long and ornate, polished to a pink and a natural fever. Her clothes were too tight, too stylish, too vivid, her eyes too roguish, her smile too coy. She was almost pitifully overemphasized from head to foot. The other girl was obviously a more subtle personality. She was an exquisitely dressed Jewess with dark hair and a lovely milky pallor. She seemed shy and vague, and these two qualities accentuated a rather delicate charm that floated about her. Her family were Episcopalians, owned three smart women shops along Fifth Avenue, and lived in a magnificent apartment on Riverside Drive. It seemed to Dick, after a few moments, that she was attempting to imitate Gloria. He wondered that people invariably chose inimitable people to imitate. We had the most hectic time," Muriel was exclaiming enthusiastically. There was a crazy woman behind us on the bus. She was absolutely, positively nutty. She kept talking to herself about something she'd like to do to somebody or something. I was petrified, but Gloria simply wouldn't get off. Mrs. Gilbert opened her mouth, properly awed. Really? Oh, she was crazy! But we should worry, she didn't hurt us. Ugly! Gracious! The man across from us said her face ought to be on a night nurse in a home for the blind, and we all howled naturally, so the man tried to pick us up." Presently Gloria emerged from her bedroom, and in unison every eye turned on her. The two girls receded into a shadowy background, unperceived, unmissed. "'We've been talking about you said Dick quickly. Your mother and I." Well, said Gloria. A pause. Muriel turned to Dick. You're a great writer, aren't you? I'm a writer, he confessed sheepishly. I always say, said Muriel earnestly, that if I ever had time to write down all my experiences it'd make a wonderful book. Rachel giggled sympathetically. Richard Caramel's bow was almost stately. Muriel continued, "'But I don't see how you can sit down and do it. And poetry? Lordy, I can't make two lines rhyme. Well, I should worry.' Richard Caramel with difficulty restrained a shout of laughter. Gloria was chewing an amazing gumdrop and staring moodily out the window. Mrs. Gilbert cleared her throat and beamed. But, you see," 
she said in a sort of universal exposition, you're not an ancient soul, like Richard." The ancient soul breathed a gasp of relief. It was out at last. Then, as if she had been considering it for five minutes, Gloria made a sudden announcement. "'I'm going to give a party.' "'Oh, can I come?' cried Muriel, with facetious daring. "'A dinner. Seven people. Muriel and Rachel and I, and you, Dick, and Anthony, and that man named Noble. I liked him. And Bleakman." Muriel and Rachel went into soft and purring ecstasies of enthusiasm. Mrs. Gilbert blinked and beamed. With an air of casualness Dick broke in with a question. "'Who is this fellow Bleakman, Gloria?' Sending a faint hostility, Gloria turned to him. "'Joseph Bleakman? He's the moving-picture man. Vice-president of Films Par Excellence. He and father do a lot of business.' Oh. Well, will you all come? They would all come. A date was arranged within the week. Dick rose, adjusted hat, coat, and muffler, and gave out a general smile. Bye-bye, said Muriel, waving her hand gaily. Call me up some time. Richard Caramel blushed for her. Deplorable End of the Chevalier O'Keefe it was Monday, and Anthony took Geraldine Burke to luncheon at the Beau Arts. Afterward, they went up to his apartment, and he wheeled out the little rolling table that held his supply of liquor, selecting vermouth, gin, and absinthe for a proper stimulant. Geraldine Burke, usher at Keith's, had been an amusement of several months. She demanded so little that he liked her, for since a lamentable affair with a debutante the preceding summer, when he had discovered that after half a dozen kisses a proposal was expected, he had been wary of girls of his own class. It was only too easy to turn a critical eye on their imperfections, some physical harshness, or a general lack of personal delicacy. But a girl who was usher at Keith's was approached with a different attitude. One could tolerate qualities in an intimate valet that would be unforgivable in a mere acquaintance on one's social level. Geraldine, curled up at the foot of the lounge, considered him with narrow, slanting eyes. "'You drink all the time, don't you?' she said suddenly. "'Why, I suppose so,' replied Anthony in some surprise. "'Don't you?' "'Nope. I go on parties sometimes, you know, about once a week, but I only take two or three drinks. You and your friends keep on drinking all the time. I should think you'd ruin your health.' Anthony was somewhat touched. "'Why, aren't you sweet to worry about me?' "'Well, I do.' "'I don't drink so very much,' he declared. "'Last month I didn't touch a drop for three weeks. And I only get really tight about once a week.' "'But you have something to drink every day, and you're only twenty-five. Haven't you any ambition? Think what you'll be at forty? "'I sincerely trust that I won't live that long.' She clicked her tongue with her teeth. "'You crazy!' she said, as he mixed another cocktail, and then, "'Are you any relation to Adam Patch?' "'Yes, he's my grandfather.' "'Really?' She was obviously thrilled. "'Absolutely.' "'That's funny. My daddy used to work for him.' "'He's a queer old man.' "'Is he nice?' she demanded. 
Well, in private life he's seldom unnecessarily disagreeable. Tell us about him. Why, Anthony considered, he's all shrunken up and he's got the remains of some gray hair that always looks as though the wind were in it. He's very moral. He's done a lot of good, said Geraldine with intense gravity. Rot, scoffed Anthony. He's a pious ass, a chicken brain. Her mind left the subject and flitted on. Why don't you live with him? Why don't I board in a Methodist parsonage? You crazy! Again she made a little clicking sound to express disapproval. Anthony thought how moral was this little waif at heart, how completely moral she would still be after the inevitable wave came that would wash her off the sands of respectability. Do you hate him? I wonder. I never liked him. You never like people who do things for you. Does he hate you? My dear Geraldine, protested Anthony, frowning humorously, do have another cocktail. I annoy him. If I smoke a cigarette he comes into the room sniffing. He's a prig, a bore, and something of a hypocrite. I probably wouldn't be telling you this if I hadn't had a few drinks, but I don't suppose it matters." Geraldine was persistently interested. She held her glass, untasted, between finger and thumb and regarded him with eyes in which there was a touch of awe. "'How do you mean a hypocrite?' "'Well,' said Anthony impatiently, "'maybe he's not. But he doesn't like the things that I like, and so, as far as I'm concerned, he's uninteresting.' Hmm. Her curiosity seemed at length satisfied. She sank back into the sofa and sipped her cocktail. "'You're a funny one,' she commented thoughtfully. "'Does everybody want to marry you because your grandfather is rich?' "'They don't. But I shouldn't blame them if they did. Still, you see, I never intend to marry.' She scorned this. "'You'll fall in love some day. Oh, you will. I know.' She nodded wisely. It'd be idiotic to be overconfident. That's what ruined the Chevalier O'Keefe. Who is he? A creature of my splendid mind. He's my one creation, the Chevalier. Crazy, she murmured pleasantly, using the clumsy rope-ladder with which she bridged all gaps and climbed after her mental superiors. Subconsciously, she felt that it eliminated distances and brought the person whose imagination had eluded her back within range. "'Oh, no,' objected Anthony. "'Oh, no, Geraldine. You mustn't play the alienist upon the Chevalier. If you feel yourself unable to understand him I won't bring him in. Besides, I should feel a certain uneasiness because of his regrettable reputation.' "'I guess I can understand anything that's got any sense to it.' answered Geraldine a bit testily. In that case there are various episodes in the life of the Chevalier which might prove diverting. Well? It was his untimely end that caused me to think of him and made him apropos in the conversation. I hate to introduce him end foremost, but it seems inevitable that the Chevalier must back into your life. Well, what about him? Did he die? He did in this manner. He was an Irishman, Geraldine, a semi-fictional Irishman, 
the wild sort with a genteel brogue and reddish hair. He was exiled from Erin in the late days of chivalry, and, of course, crossed over to France. Now the Chevalier O'Keefe, Geraldine, had, like me, one weakness. He was enormously susceptible to all sorts and conditions of women. Besides being a sentimentalist, he was a romantic, a vain fellow, a man of wild passions, a little blind in one eye and almost stone-blind in the other. Now a male roaming the world in this condition is as helpless as a lion without teeth, and in consequence the Chevalier was made utterly miserable for twenty years by a series of women who hated him, used him, bored him, aggravated him, sickened him, spent his money, made a fool of him. In brief, as the world has it, loved him. This was bad, Geraldine. And as the Chevalier, save for this one weakness, this exceeding susceptibility, was a man of penetration, he decided that he would rescue himself once and for all from these drains upon him. With this purpose, he went to a very famous monastery in Champagne, called, well, anachronistically known as St. Voltaire's. It was the rule at St. Voltaire's that no monk could descend to the ground story of the monastery so long as he lived, but should exist engaged in prayer and contemplation in one of the four towers, which were called after the four commandments of the monastery rule—poverty, chastity, obedience, and silence. When the day came that was to witness the Chevalier's farewell to the world, he was utterly happy. He gave all his Greek books to his landlady, and his sword he sent in a golden sheath to the King of France, and all his mementos of Ireland he gave to the young Huguenot who sold fish in the street where he lived. Then he rode out to St. Voltaire's, slew his horse at the door, and presented the carcass to the monastery cook. At five o'clock that night he felt for the first time free, forever free from sex. No woman could enter the monastery, no monk could descend below the second story. So, as he climbed the winding stair that led to his cell at the very top of the Tower of Chastity, he paused for a moment by an open window which looked down fifty feet onto a road below. It was all so beautiful, he thought, this world that he was leaving. The golden shower of sun beating down upon the long fields, the spray of trees in the distance, the vineyards, quiet and green, freshening wide miles before him. He leaned his elbows on the window casement and gazed at the winding road. Now, as it happened, Therese, a peasant girl of sixteen from a neighboring village, was at that moment passing along this same road that ran in front of the monastery. Five minutes before, the little piece of ribbon which held up the stocking on her pretty left leg had worn through and broken. Being a girl of rare modesty, she had thought to wait until she arrived home before repairing it, but it had bothered her to such an extent that she felt she could endure it no longer. So as she passed the Tower of Chastity, she stopped and with a pretty gesture lifted her skirt, as little as possible, be it said to her credit, to adjust her garter. Up in the tower the newest arrival in the ancient monastery of St. Voltaire, as though pulled forward by a gigantic and irresistible hand, leaned from the window. Further he leaned and further, until suddenly one of the stones loosened under his weight, broke from its cement with a soft powdery sound, and first headlong, then head over heels, 
Finally, in a vast and impressive revolution, tumbled the Chevalier O'Keefe, bound for the hard earth and eternal damnation. Therese was so much upset by the occurrence that she ran all the way home, and for ten years spent an hour a day in secret prayer for the soul of the monk whose neck and vows were simultaneously broken on that unfortunate Sunday afternoon. And the Chevalier O'Keefe, being suspected of suicide, was not buried in consecrated ground, but tumbled into a field nearby, where he doubtless improved the quality of the soil for many years afterward. Such was the untimely end of a very brave and gallant gentleman. What do you think, Geraldine?" But Geraldine, lost long before, could only smile roguishly, wave her first finger at him, and repeat her bridge-all, her explain-all. "'Crazy,' she said. "'You crazy!' His thin face was kindly, she thought, and his eyes quite gentle. She liked him because he was arrogant without being conceited, and because, unlike the men she met about the theatre, he had a horror of being conspicuous. What an odd, pointless story! But she had enjoyed the part about the stocking. After the fifth cocktail he kissed her, and between laughter and bantering caresses and a half-stifled flare of passion they passed an hour. At four-thirty she claimed an engagement, and going into the bathroom she rearranged her hair. Refusing to let him order her a taxi, she stood for a moment in the doorway. You will get married," she was insisting. You wait and see. Anthony was playing with an ancient tennis ball, and he bounced it carefully on the floor several times before he answered with a soupçon of acidity. You're a little idiot, Geraldine. She smiled provokingly. Oh, I am, am I? Want to bet? That'd be silly, too. Oh, it would, would it? Well, I'll just bet you'll marry somebody inside of a year." Anthony bounced the tennis ball very hard. This was one of his handsome days, she thought. A sort of intensity had displaced the melancholy in his dark eyes. "'Geraldine,' he said at length, "'in the first place I have no one I want to marry. In the second place I haven't enough money to support two people. In the third place I am entirely opposed to marriage for people of my type. In the fourth place, I have a strong distaste for even the abstract consideration of it." But Geraldine only narrowed her eyes knowingly, made her clicking sound, and said she must be going. It was late. "'Call me up soon,' she reminded him as he kissed her goodbye. "'You haven't for three weeks, you know.' "'I will,' he promised fervently. He shut the door and coming back into the room stood for a moment lost in thought, with the tennis ball still clasped in his hand. There was one of his lonelinesses coming, one of those times when he walked the streets or sat, aimless and depressed, biting a pencil at his desk. It was a self-absorption with no comfort, a demand for expression with no outlet, a sense of time rushing by, ceaselessly and wastefully assuaged only by that conviction that there was nothing to waste, because all efforts and attainments were equally valueless. He thought with emotion, aloud, ejaculative, for he was hurt and confused. No idea of getting married, by God! Of a sudden he hurled the tennis ball violently across the room, where it barely missed the lamp, 
and rebounding here and there for a moment, lay still upon the floor. End of Book One, Chapter Three, Part One.